Well, good morning. Thank you again for having me to be with you all. I hope this uh, series and the, I pray the series will edify and challenge us to think about God's church biblically and be able to share that with others that they will want to be a part of his church. I know there are some that um, uh, could be here uh, during the Bible class, and so real quick, I want to review what we talked about. Um, one of the reasons we are doing this series is we're trying to answer questions such as, what does it mean to be a part of a church? What does it mean to be part of the church? Um, how should I think about people in denominations? How does the Bible view that? Um, how should I think about people who are part of institutional churches? How does the Bible view that scenario? Um, we're trying to look at this biblically, uh, and I pray that um, that's indeed what will happen. And if you think I'm wrong, please feel free to talk to me and challenge me, um, because my goal is to be biblical and to do what God tells us to do. So in the very first lesson, we sought to define the word church, which really we translate into the word church. It comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. And we realized that the word is not innately religious, the word ecclesia. The word church in English is. It's always used in a religious context. But the word ecclesia just means a group of people. And it can refer to a religious group of people or a non-religious group of people. It's not necessarily organized. It can. One of the passages we looked at referred to a court system um, uh, as well as a mob that wanted to kill Paul. And we recognize that there's two ways the New Testament used the phrase Church of God or Church of Christ or the Assembly of God or Christ. And there one way is what we call the universal sense, the universal church. Of course, you're not going to see the phrase universal church in the New Testament. That's just our term that we've come up with to refer to it. And it refers to the one body of the same, just those who are in Christ. And uh, we also saw that it's used in a local sense. So a collection of saints who are meeting and working for God and his kingdom in ways he wants them to, uh, such as in 1 Corinthians 1 and Galatians 1, 2. But this leads to several questions. For instance, if there is a distinction in these two usages, if there are these two ways the New Testament writers talk about God's church, what does that mean about Jesus' headship and kingship? If the church is the one body of Jesus and he's the head of that, and that's the universal usage, how does that relate to local churches? Is he still the head of local churches or is he not? Um, how does the Bible talk about that? Um, it leads to questions such as, well, does the membership of being in one affect the membership in being in another? I'll just go ahead and tell you, yes, it does. But let's look at how that might be. So the very first thing I want to do as we seek to understand the relationship and the distinction between the universal church and the local church is I want to think about leadership and organization. This will really be a distinction between the two. And this, is be and this matters because this directly affects whether we see the universal church denominationally or not, whether we should think denominationally or not based on what the Bible teaches us. Because the denomination simply defined as an organizational structure where you have groups grouped together under some authority. That may be a loose authority. It may be a very strict hierarchy, but in some kind of authority working together. And many people, what we've said, is think that the universal church is all the denominations or all the local faithful churches of some particular denomination. And that's denominational thinking. I think most of us here are at least undenominational or even anti-denominational. Um, and the first point we want to recognize is that a universal church 
has no earthly structure, no organized earthly structure. Go to Ephesians 1, verse 22 again. This is the only text in the New Testament that gives you any kind of structure for the universal church, for the group of the saved, for the body of all saints or believers in Christ. Ephesians 1, 22. Where Paul says, And he, referring to God, put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Another way to view, uh, to think about this is, you can't go to the headquarters of the universal church. There's no place on earth that you could go and talk to anyone and get a, an understanding of who is in charge of the universal church. Because that's not how God structured it. The universal church is just a group of the saved. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you're individually members of it. And Christ is your head. It's really about as simple as it can get. Christ is in charge and everyone else who's a part of that group individually answers to him. In contrast, local churches have a little bit more structure. If you consider Philippians 1, 1, which you read in the previous uh, lesson, but I'll go ahead and reread that verse, Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So in local congregations, you have these people, overseers, who oversee the congregation. We'll look at several passages about them throughout these lessons, get an idea uh, of what their job is. If we'd had two more days, I would have had a whole lesson on overseers. Um, uh, but we will get a, a basic understanding of what their role is and how they work. But one way to think about this is that the universal church has a chief shepherd and local churches have lesser shepherds. They have lower shepherds. If you consider in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter, who is an apostle, is also writing to elders. He recognizes himself as an elder, and he writes to other elders. And he tells them, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. According to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So who is this chief shepherd? Well, it's, of course, Jesus. And he writes to his elders and he tells them something. He says, one, exercise authority, exercise oversight among the flock that you are among. This is one of the reasons why we don't see in the Bible elders exerting authority in over other congregations. When we shift into that, we're shifting into denominational thinking, denominational practice. We're also shifting into the mindset that the universal church, the group of the saved, has some kind of earthly structure more than just Jesus being the head and everyone else answering to him. No, he tells his elders, you shepherd the flock that you are among, not, not other people, not people you're not among, the ones you are among. And do so not because you just like to lord over, not just because you want to, uh, to make people do what you want them to do, 
but because you're trying to help them. You're trying to shepherd them, to take care of sheep that belong to God. Again, it makes this point that this flock really is God's, and that elders have a portion of this flock that they are in charge of taking care of. And at the very end, he makes this point that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an fading crown of glory if you did a good job being an elder. So this begins to answer one of those questions we have. Is there any relationship between the universal church and the local church? How does this affect Jesus' kingship? The elders of a local church will still answer to the chief shepherd for how they shepherd. And for that reason, as sheep, we need to appreciate that. We need to be careful about listening to the shepherds who have to answer for how they shepherded you. We'll look at some other passages this week that talk about that. But just think about that. A chief shepherd, a shepherd, sorry, a elder is not just responsible for his soul. He is also responsible for your soul. And he answered, has to answer to God for that. Don't take your shepherds lightly. They care about your souls. They're watching out for your souls. And they will one day stand at a throne being judged for how they did. Don't make that job harder on them. So when it comes to organization and structure, all you see as far as universal church is you have Christ to the head, everyone's individual, individual members. And the local level, you do have a little bit more. You have those deacons, but the word deacon means servant. I don't know why we don't translate just as servant because it's just the word for servant. I wish we did. Um, but we don't for some strange reason. And, uh, but deacons don't have authority. And again, we don't have time to go into all of uh, the different roles, but deacons don't play an authoritative role. Elders do. There's also a distinction between the universal and local church in regards to who founds them and, and how they begin. So in Matthew 18, Jesus is asking the apostles, who do people say that I am? And different people have different ideas. Some people think he's Elijah. Some people think he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some people think he's someone else. And Peter stands up and makes the famous statement, you are the Christ. And whether it's a famous statement is this is what the Jewish people were expecting. The word Christ is the Greek form of Messiah. It means anointed one. And so when he's saying this, he's saying the guy the Old Testament was constantly prophesying about, you're that guy. It's a big deal for, for Peter to say this. You are the Christ. And in verse 18, Jesus responds, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This has been a text that has confused, I think, many people and denominations about what Jesus exactly means. Uh, talking to Peter, you are Peter upon this rock, I'll build my church. Well, what is this rock? I think if you pay, take time to think about the context, it's the statement Peter makes. The statement of faith that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the king. But the point I want you to focus on in this verse is the statement, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Hades is simply the realm of the dead. And what Jesus came to do, according to 1 John, is he came to overcome the works of the devil. He came to overpower death. And what do we say the universal church was? It's the group of the saved. It's the group that death 
no longer is going to hold power over because of what Jesus did, because of what we remembered in the Lord's Supper. His sacrifice that draws us near to God. His sacrifice that shows us how deep the Father's love is. Defeats death. So who founds the universal church? Who founds the group of the saved? Who builds that? That's Jesus. That's God. But who founds local assemblies? Well, that's actually men. Consider Romans uh, 15. I don't have another passage up there, but go to Romans 15 first. Romans 15 Paul is telling the Romans why he hasn't come to see them yet. Apparently, they're either feeling unloved or um, uh, not appreciated. And he's having to try to help them understand why he hasn't shown up yet. In verse 22, he mentions, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. What is that reason? What's what he says in verse 20. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10, um, I'll turn it over real quick and read that as well. The beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians because they are creating factions and divisions and they're appealing to following Peter or Paul or Paulus. And in verse 10 he says, According to the grace of God who was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another's building on it. But each man must be careful on how he builds on it. He's the first guy to go to Corinth, to teach the gospel to Corinth. And so he tells the Romans, I haven't gotten to go to Rome yet because someone got there before me. And I I really wanted to go to places that hadn't heard the gospel. I wanted to lay foundations that didn't have foundations yet. And so he tells the Corinthians, I came to you and I laid a foundation. Another person is building on it, but it's all for the work of God. It's all for the work of Christ. But local men get together and they decide to start local works. Now again, we looked at the passage in 1 Peter that illustrates that they're still under the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd will still have say and sway over those faithful local groups. But they're begun by local men. So if there's a difference in who founds them, that would probably mean there's a difference in when they begin. So when did the universal church, the group of the saved, begin? Now, that's actually a really hard question to answer because, remember, the universal church is simply the group of the saved. And so it's equivalent to asking, when did salvation become accomplished? And did you know that there are people in the universal church who are from the Old Testament? Because the universal church is just the group of the saved in Christ. And as Paul says in Romans, the reason anyone can be saved, Old Testament, New Testament, is because of Christ. So when when exactly did that begin? It's kind of hard, especially the answer from God's perspective, who had this plan from the very beginning. But if we limit ourselves to a human perspective, if we put ourselves inside the bounds of time and history, we might be able to come up with a little bit of an answer. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, The Hebrew writer talking about covenants and how they work. He says, for this reason, he is the mediator, the bringer, or the one who establishes a mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
So I would suggest that inside of history, not from God's perspective, but from a human perspective, the universal church began sometime around AD 33. When Christ accomplished salvation, when he gave access to salvation. But it's hard to know exactly what moment that is. Was it when he died or was it when he was resurrected? If Paul says if Christ died but wasn't resurrected, we're still in our sins. Or was it when he ascended back into heaven? Or was it the day of Pentecost? It's hard to nail down a date and time precisely for when the universal church, the one group of the, uh, the saved, began. But it's a lot easier to nail down for most places when local churches begin. Again, we already looked at Romans, um, uh, at Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians. But consider Acts 15. Acts 15 Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. I just want you to look at verse 36 and 41 with me. It says in verse 36, After some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Jump down to verse 41. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So let me ask a question. Before Paul went on the first missionary journey... Was there a church in Antioch of Presidia, a local church? Was there a local church in Iconium? Was there a local church in Lystra? Well, no. There weren't local churches yet. They began after Paul and Barnabas did their work and laid those foundations. And they're going back in this text. They want to go back and see those brethren, those local assemblies, and see how they are. And the reason this is important is because sometimes we can talk in certain ways and talk with certain language that can confuse others and even ourselves. Sometimes we'll say, well, I'm part of the church that began in 8033. And if what we mean by that is I'm part of the one body of the saved, true statement, as long as I'm in Christ. But this local church did not begin in 8033. In fact, I don't think there's any church today that has existed continuously through history since AD 33, in the local sense. Local churches begin to exist, and they often come to cease. Now, the universal church is just a group of the saved. That never ends. But local churches come into existence and go out of existence. And one of the reasons that matters is when we're trying to share the gospel with people, and we say you need to be part of Jesus' one church. That's a true statement. But what the outside world will often hear is you need to be part of my local group, which sounds super exclusive, but we don't believe you have to be part of this local group to be saved. There's lots of local groups that follow God's word from our perspective. It's the reason to understand this is so that when we're communicating God's truth, we're not miscommunicating accidentally. I want everyone to be part of the church that began in 1833 the universal church, the group of the saved. But my local group, whatever local group I'm a part of, isn't the identical thing to that. And when we understand that, it helps us prevent miscommunication when we're trying to help people understand God's word. So if we visualize this, and for those who I know who can't see, I will try to describe the, the picture we'll create. Um, we'll have circles that represent people. So we have a circle with Christ's name on it. And then we just pick three random names, Joe, Peter, and Anne. And Joe, Peter, and Anne decide that they will accept what Jesus has done, accept salvation in Jesus. And so they are baptized into Christ, and God adds them to the universal church, adds them to the number of the saved. 
So they're individually connected. So we draw individual lines from these circles representing people to Christ. Because they're in the universal body, the group of the saved. But then Joe, Peter, and Anne might be studying the scriptures or listening to the apostles teach if they live in the first century. They realize God wants his saints to be getting together in a local situation and doing some things. And so if we merge those circles together and we represent what they do as a local assembly by the orange space that's shared in all the circles, that will represent a local church. So as we will build this chart to get an idea, how do local churches relate to the universal church? So we've talked about organization. We've talked about founder and beginning. I want to talk about those roles. Who controls who's in and who's not in a local church and who controls who's in and who's not in the universal church? We've already alluded to that in the first lesson. And we made the point that when it comes to the universal church, um, uh, referenced this verse just a few seconds ago, but Acts 2, 47. Acts 2, verse 47. Luke writes, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We kind of made this point in the previous lesson, but you could actually walk up to someone and, say, you know, uh, and start talking about churches and talking about religion and say, you know what, I'm part of a church that you can't actually join. This is going to make them really curious and, and maybe affronted a little bit. Uh, like, well, why not? Why can't I be a part of this church? It's like, well, because in the universal body, God adds them. Now, we can talk about how God adds people to his universal body, but it's God's choice. He controls that role, like Hebrews 12 uh, says as well, that who are enrolled in heaven. He's the one who keeps tally on who's in the universal body and who's not. Now, this doesn't mean we're not concerned with this as local churches. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But God is the one who controls the role of the universal church, the group of the saved. But locally, men handle that. Consider Acts 9 and verse 26. Paul, who was the great persecutor of Christians, uh, at the end of chapter 7 of Acts and in chapter 8, chapter 9, he's on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians um, who are following God, and he is converted because of the vision of Jesus. But in verse 26, he's become a Christian, and he's come back to Jerusalem. Now, again, imagine this. Let me put it in real terms. Let's say, say Osama bin Laden was still alive, and he showed up at your, day, your door saying he was a Christian. Are you going to believe him? It's going to be really hard to believe that this guy is a Christian because of what he's done in the past. And that's the initial reception that Saul gets in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. It's in verse 27 when Barnabas comes and vouches for him that they believe Barnabas, so they're willing to let him be a part of the group, let him associate with the Christians in Jerusalem. So here's the church in Jerusalem. They don't trust Paul really as a Christian, so they don't let him be a part of their group. They're controlling that role. They're controlling who's a part and who's not a part. And note, they're never rebuked for doing that. Now, just because something is solid doesn't mean it is approval, but they're never criticized by Barnabas or anyone else for saying, I don't think you're really a Christian, so I can't, you can't be a part of us. What happens is Paul, Barnabas explains that he really is a follower now. He really is a saint. But here you have Saul. 
So the circle representing Saul uh, and his lying to Christ because even though the Jerusalem church didn't let him in, did that separate him from Christ? Did that kick him out of the universal church? No. God controls that role. Now, again, these brethren are trying to do what's right, and they make a mistake, and sometimes that's going to happen. But even though Saul can't be a part of the local group, doesn't necessarily mean he is kicked out from the universal church. A similar example in Acts 8, you get the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8, the, the Ethiopian eunuch is traveling back home to Ethiopia. Paul, oh, sorry, God sends Philip to, to teach the, uh, the eunuch the gospel. And in verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip as well as the eunuch, uh, and he was baptized. And then verse 39, the spirit snatches Philip away, miraculously, just, just kind of teleports him somewhere else. And that leaves the eunuch alone. And he's heading back home, and he goes on rejoicing. But when he gets back home, as far as we know, he's the only Christian in all of Ethiopia. Does the fact that this eunuch... Being the only Christian in his locale, there's no local church to symbol with, mean he cannot be a part of the universal church. No. He was baptized. He was saved. He was put into the one body. And there's no local church to be a part of, so he can't be a part. Now, presumably, he goes back and he tells them about Jesus and tells them the good news. And there probably is a local church that eventually forms because of his work and effort. I mean, this guy's studying on his way back home. He loves God's word. It's a pretty safe assumption to think he continued teaching people about God when he got home. But initially, there's, there's no local group for him to join. But that doesn't preclude him from being in the universal group. Another example in 3 John, it's kind of the flip side of these examples. In 3 John, John writes about a guy named Diotrephes. And Diotrephes likes to be in charge. In verse 9, John writes, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he has done, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So here's this guy. He's managed to get a significant following at this local congregation. And so he's not accepting the teaching of the Apostle John. He's not letting his letters be read so that teaching can be known. And when people come from John to the congregation, he doesn't accept them, um, and he doesn't let anyone else accept them. If they do, he kicks them out of the local church. So here's the question. Does Diotrephes have the power to kick someone out of the universal church? No. Diotrephes is just a man. He doesn't decide who is saved and who isn't saved. He has enough sway to kick him out of the local church, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are no longer part of the universal church. Now, before you start thinking that what we're saying is it doesn't matter if you're part of a local congregation, we'll get to that in a second because it does matter. So don't assume that that's the conclusion we should draw just because we're not done with the lesson yet. So what about fellowship? Go to 1 John chapter 1. Go to 1 John chapter 1. And in 1 John chapter 1, I've talked about this before, but I don't expect you to remember everything I've ever said. Um, I don't expect my local congregation to remember what I said from week to week necessarily. And uh, so I want to refresh this. In verses 1 and 2 of 1 John, uh, he, John hammers 
away at this idea that they saw the word, they heard the word, they touched the word, and it was manifested, it was shown, and they're proclaiming this word to you. In fact, just read verses 1 and 2 with me. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard be proclaimed to you also, so that you may have, and you, I want you to just think for a second before you read the next little for, uh, couple words. What is, what is John going to say? What does he want them to have, based on verses 1 and 2? You're like me, you're going to say eternal life. Now let's see what he actually says. That you may too, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, verses 1 and 2, he hammers away saying, we heard the word of life, we touched it, we saw it, and then he says in verse 3, I'm proclaiming this so you can have fellowship. And you're like, okay, well, which one is it, John? Are you concerned about the eternal life or are you concerned about fellowship? But he ends his letter in, verse, in chapter 5 saying that I've written to you so that you may know you have eternal life. And the answer is both. Biblically, eternal life is fellowship with God and his people. Let me real quick define Christian or biblical fellowship. Because the word fellowship, like ecclesia, can be used in multiple contexts. Sometimes it's used in the Bible to talk about a business partnership. Simply defined as joint participation, but more fully defined from a Christian perspective, I would say it is a sharing of work and resources because of a shared identity in Christ. I don't have time to, to uh, lay all that out. I did that back home um, under, uh, after uh, over three lessons, and we don't have time for that. Um, but if you just want one text to go back home and read, read 2 Corinthians 6 to get an idea of what Christian or biblical fellowship with God and, and his people are. And so you share in work, you share in resources, because you share an identity in Christ. And so he says, I want you to have that. I want you to have that fellowship with us, I want you to have the fellowship with God. In other words, Christians want to be with other Christians. Christians want to have fellowship with other Christians. So when when Paul tries to join himself to the congregation in Jerusalem, that's exactly what he wants to do, what he should want to do. He's not allowed in because they don't trust him. But he tries to be with other Christians. When Diotrephes is kicking people out, it's not because they didn't want to be a part of it, but because Diotrephes wanted to be in charge. It isn't like people opposing him. But those individuals wanted to be with those other Christians. This is the reason why in the world you find this a lot, where people, they believe in God, maybe they even believe in Jesus, but they don't want to be a part of a local church. They don't want to be a part of a body. They want eternal life, but they don't want to be connected to a family. And if I ever meet those people, what I try to help them understand is, well, you've you've missed it. Eternal life is fellowship with God and his people. You can't want eternal life and not want fellowship with God and his people. They are one and the same. This is why being isolated Christians isn't really God's plan. It's not really what God wants. It's not what we should want. But in the universal sense, the, the, the fellowship that is focused on is fellowship with God. Jump down to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself was in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us 
from all sin. So in the universal church, fellowship is primarily focused with God. Now again, First John paints this picture that if you have fellowship with God, you will have fellowship with his people. It goes hand in hand. You can't separate these two, really. And that eternal life is this. It is a sharing of work, resources, and identity with God and his people. But in the universal sense, the primary focus is fellowship with God. And we'll, again, we'll throw up a, a picture here to illustrate that in a second. In the local sense, it is focused on the saints. So consider Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Sorry, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. I misspoke. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you, in view of your participation. That is our word fellowship there, and the word we often translate as fellowship, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing that he began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He says, you all are participating in the gospel. You're sharing in the work of the gospel, sharing resources in the gospel, because you share in the identity that's in the gospel. And he's saying, you guys are doing that amongst yourselves. Now, at the end of the book, again, he talks about fellowship that the Philippians have with him from a distance because they send him financial aid. In other words, you all and I have fellowship because you support me in the work of Sycamore. But it still illustrates this point that fellowship in the local sense is focused primarily on people you actually can see and touch and talk to. Work we're sharing, resources we're sharing because we share an identity in Christ. Now, we don't have time to really delve into that and get a full understanding of that. And like I said, it's, it, you don't want to separate those two too harshly because, as he says in First John, if, if you have fellowship with God, you'll have fellowship with his people. If you really have fellowship with God's people fully, you have fellowship with God. But let's illustrate this, as we've been doing. Oh, you also have the passage in Second John where he warns about uh, having fellowship in the false teaching with those people who are coming through and not teaching the gospel. Um, he talked about how they can be joint participants in the false teaching by supporting those individuals. Um, but in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for sake of time, we, we won't read this text. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians because there is a brother who's a member there who's living in a sinful relation. He says in verse 1, there's someone who has his father's wife. And even the Gentiles don't do that. Now, I presume he is talking about a stepmother as opposed to his actual biological mother, but the text doesn't clearly indicate that. But Paul is so surprised. He says, look, the, even the pagans don't do this. Like, this, this is something that even the pagans agree is bad. And then he says, verse 2, you become arrogant and not mourned so that you would remove him from your midst. Read verses 3 through 5. For I and my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here is his brother, and you have this congregation. And again, we're representing that by these circles. Um, uh, but you have this congregation, we only have three circles here, but there's presumably more Christians in Corinth. But there is a brother there who has disconnected himself from Christ. He's no longer part of the universal body because he's living in sin. He's rejected God's headship and Jesus' kingship. And the, the congregation in Corinth hasn't addressed that. 
It hasn't dealt with him. It hasn't made the point that you're living in sin and this is not okay and you need to get right with God. In other words, that universal fellowship focused on fellowship with God. That's the primary concern. And the reason Paul wants him to basically excommunicate him in the, in the old uh, language, to disfellowship him, is so he will be saved. That's the goal. Let me rephrase this. It doesn't matter if people are in our local assemblies if they're not part of a universal body. Them being part of our local assemblies does not save them. And so if there's someone who's not saved, who is a member here, and we know it, then we need to address it. And this is something that does not happen in denominations. There are very, very, very few denominational churches that pay attention to any of the passages, and there's quite a few, that talk about addressing sin in members' lives. Because it doesn't matter if you and I have fellowship, if you and I actually do good things in God's kingdom, if you and I actually go and study the Bible with people. I've been in those scenarios where people who aren't Christians get me contacts. But that doesn't make them save themselves. You think about the vision throughout the Bible. In the garden, one of the things that is lost, maybe the primary thing that is lost, is fellowship with God. God used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. They used to see him face to face. And then if you pay attention, there, that theme runs throughout the rest of the Bible. In the tabernacle, God's presence dwelt with Israel. In the temple was a permanent dwelling of God's presence. And when they rebuild the temple after captivity, Haggai says this temple is going to be greater than the former, even though it's smaller and you don't have the glory and the beauty and the gold. And the people are, I think, confused at Haggai's statement. Like, how can this be better than the previous temple? Because God is going to come in the flesh and come to this temple. 1 John, when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it's the Greek word that we translate into tabernacle into the Old Testament, the Septuagint version. Jesus came to tabernacle amongst his people. And then in Ephesians 2, the one body is now the church. The one body is the dwelling of God in the spirit. And one of the last verses in the whole Bible, Revelation 22 we will see him face to face. That is the thing that we are most concerned about. That is the core idea. And our fellowship with brethren should be focused on that. So he says, look, brethren in Corinth, you need to address this. We care about people being saved, not just being in our buildings or being amongst our assemblies. So if he's openly living in sin and he's not sorrowful at all, you, you need to address it and say, that's not okay. You can't be among us anymore. Until you really want to serve and love God. There's also a distinction in death. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is talking to the brethren. And it's helpful to understand that the New Testament Christians, they really thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow. And they really expected him to come back in their lifetime. And that helps us understand why they have this concern. So pick up in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. He says, you don't need to be worried about those who have already passed away. They haven't missed the return of Jesus. They will be raised from the dead and they will go be with us. In fact, they'll actually go before those who are alive. So Paul is addressing that. But one of the things that that means is death does not separate you from the universal body. In fact, that's part of what being in the universal body is about. It's part of the definition of being saved in Christ, the hope of resurrection. So when you die, you're not disconnected from that one body, from the one group of the saved. But you are disconnected from local churches. I think about the situation with Stephen. Stephen is preaching the word, and he gets stoned to death. And in chapter 8, they mourn loudly over his death. The other way I say that is, a, I presume you don't have members here in this local group who are dead. Um, unless I put you to sleep, maybe, for my preaching. Death separates us from the local, local membership, but it does not separate us from the universal membership. Another situation. Last one we'll look at. There is a distinction in what we'll call divisibility. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul addresses this idea in the local church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says in verse 17, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. One of the reasons this matters is because sometimes we talk about how in the 50s or 60s the church divided. And depending on what we mean by that, that can be an accurate statement or an inaccurate statement. Because it's true, in the 50s and 60s, even to the 70s, and still today, there are local congregations splitting over a variety of issues. Over issues that they say that a church can do or can't do, things that are right or not right. In fact, congregations are splitting today over the question of homosexuality. Is it okay to live a homosexual lifestyle and, uh, and, and serve God in that homosexual lifestyle? And that's true in denominational churches. But can that happen in the universal church? Can the universal church split what I suggest to you, no, it can't. Because God controls that role. He controls those who are saved and those who aren't saved. If, we're, if we think that a universal church split in the 50s and 60s, we're thinking denominationally. And like we've already established, we're not denominational. If anything, we're anti-denominational. And so the last congregation I want you to consider in this little chart is the church in Sardis. Um, uh, I actually meant uh, to send this passage to be the reading this morning. Um, I think I wrote PM first and AM second, so I actually meant the Ephesians passage we read tonight. Um, but that's okay. If he, uh, Revelation chapter 
uh, chapter six, not six, so chapter three. Uh, but that was really probably my fault because I didn't order it in the typical fashion. Um, Revelation chapter three, pick up in verse one. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who comes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name from before, before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a very interesting situation. So, so on this chart, we have lots of circles that represent the members of the church in Sardis. And did you catch what he said in verse 4? There's a few of you who haven't soiled your garments. Here we have a local church where most of the members are not in the universal body. Most of the members have disconnected themselves from God. As he says, erase their names from the book of life. Now he's warning them, he's urging them to repent so that that won't stay the case. But there's only a handful that are worthy to walk with him in white. This is really shocking to me and the way I used to think about local congregations. I could have never imagined this being a scenario for a local congregation until someone pointed out to me this passage about a church where most of the members actually weren't in the universal body. Only a few. This passage has helped me think more biblically about those who might be in institutional churches or even denominational churches. Is it possible for someone to be a local member of a denominational church or a local, of an unfaithful local church still be in the body of Christ, still be saved? Based on this text, probably. Because here you have a local church that by and large is not faithful. We don't know exactly why, but they're not faithful. But there's still a few who are in Christ. Now, how long is that the case? The text is going to get into. I want you to jump over to Revelation chapter 2 and look at the church in Ephesus real quick. We won't read the whole um, letter that, God, that Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus. But I just want you to note what he warns them in verse 5. Therefore, uh, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and it will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That's an important text because it clearly teaches that there is, in some sense, a local a way a local church can be Jesus' local church or not be Jesus' local church. He warns them, I will take away your lampstand. You will stop being my local church if you don't repent. And that can apply to Ephesus, can apply to any church, including the seven that are listed in Revelation. And so at what point does God say to people who are faithful, say, you need to go find another faithful group because this group, this group is hopeless? I don't know. That's God's call. That's his judgment. What I'm trying to illustrate is biblically it's possible for someone to be part of an unfaithful group but not to be disconnected from Christ necessarily. But how long does God 
see that? How long does Ad put up with that before he looks at the group and says, that's it, you're no longer my group, your lampstand is removed? I realize that makes things more complicated and not less complicated. I don't like that. But we're trying to be biblical in the way we think about the church, the way we talk about the church. We're trying to understand what God reveals so we accurately convey that to others. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because it answers his question, is, is Jesus still head over local churches? Yes, he is. They're still under his authority. He's still the king, not just of the individuals who are saved, but over the local groups. Uh, the Ephesian church warned about the lampstand in Revelation 2. The elders answering to the chief shepherd. Does the membership of one affect the membership of another? Very clearly from the standpoint of, if I'm not part of the universal church, a local church should not accept me. That happens in Paul's case because they don't think that he's really a Christian. They were rebuked in Corinth because they do accept him, um, and they shouldn't. So yes, at the least, at very least, the membership in the universal church, and or phrase uh, it this way: not being in the universal church should preclude me being able to be part of a local church. Now, just because I'm not, I can't be, I use that word can't intentionally, just because I can't be part of a local church doesn't necessarily mean I'm automatically cut out of, out of a universal church. And we saw that with Paul's example, the Ethiopian eunuch, the situation with Diotrephes. But like we said, I should want to be. We'll get more into that in other lessons. It also matters because it begins to affect what each group should practice. If the universal church is not a group of groups, and we see no examples in Scripture of those groups working in tandem as groups, then that should affect how local churches operate. If there is no earthly structure for, universal, for the universal church to operate together as the group of groups, then we probably shouldn't. Because we just don't see that model. We don't see that instruction. And this will be really getting into tonight's lesson but it directly affects God's divine purpose for each of these two different groups. God has a purpose for the universal church, meaning for Christians as individuals. And God has a purpose for the local church and its structure. And one of the reasons there's been so much confusion in times past is people have claimed that anything that an individual Christian can do, that the church can do. That thinking fails to recognize the distinction between the universal church or Christians as individual members of the one body and the local churches. They're separate entities, related but separate entities, which means their purposes created by God are separate as well. And that's what we'll begin to get into tonight. But none of this matters if you're not a Christian. If you are not in the one body to say, if you haven't confessed Jesus as your Lord, it doesn't matter if you understand this distinction. Um, if you're here today and you come every service, but you're not in the one body that's saved, you need to be. God wants you to be. The brethren here want you to be. They want Jesus to be your Lord. They want you to be a saint, having been washed in the blood of Jesus through baptism, living a life for God, your Savior. And if you haven't done that and you're ready to do that, why wait any longer? Well, if you don't understand what that is or how, what that looks like and you need to get some clarity on that, I can tell you that there are at least 
75 individual people here who'd be glad to sit down and talk with you and explain those ideas to you if you need that. So if you have any spiritual need that we can help you, please let us know as we stand and as we sing.